Off we go. So, uh, good morning. I say good morning. Uh, I'm actually speaking to my first, not my first uh, foreign guest, uh, as it were, but certainly my first guest from Australia. So, uh, I have uh, a lady called Deanne Duncan on the podcast this morning. And Deanne is in Canberra, which is in the Australian Capital Territory. It is, in fact, the capital of Australia. I think I'm right there. Um, and it's probably the only major city in Australia that I didn't visit when I went to Australia a few years ago. And um, Deanne and I came across each other through through LinkedIn, I think. How did we? Oh, no, you came on one of my webinars, didn't you? And um, yes, yeah. yeah, so we got chatting since then. And Deanne... I mean, every, I think every, everybody that I ever I ever meet in my life is interesting in one way or another, and Deanne's an interesting person. And so I said uh, I said to her a couple of weeks ago, would she like to be a guest on the Heart Shaped Decisions podcast? So here we are. So it's eight just after eight o'clock in the morning in Birmingham, and in, in the UK, and it's uh, just after five o'clock in the evening in uh, Canberra, I believe. So Diane, welcome. And would you like to would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Um, and yes, it is five o'clock here in Canberra. Um, so I am currently, I guess, work, a little bit of background about me. I'm currently working as an IT manager, so an IT account manager here in Canberra. That's my full time job. But I also am working to create a coaching business, which is why I guess I had an interest in your heart-shaped decisions, mm. um, because I just thought there were some similarities between what you were talking about and what I've been doing, I guess, in setting up my coaching business. So I guess um, we all have our story to tell, and the story that I have is that a few years ago, I was I applied for a job and um, was successful in in getting that job and then when I turned up it turned out that the job that I had applied for and was successful for and the job that I was appointed to when I turned up were two different things and the job that I was appointed to when I turned up is not one that I would have actually applied for so wow. I found myself pretty much out of my depth right from the start and I had in the past I think suffered from self-doubt and a lack of self-confidence and self lack of self-esteem and, and whatever and because I was in a role where I really didn't feel like I was a great fit and really didn't think I was doing what I should be doing in that role, I, the self-doubt and, and lack of self-confidence really came to the fore. So it really wasn't working for me. And so I made a decision at that point to ask for help and didn't really know what to do about asking for help or where to go. But what I decided to do in the end was to um, receive some coaching. Yeah. And it just so happened that the coach, the coach, a friend recommended the coach. And it, I had no idea about coaching. I just knew that I needed help and I'd heard of coaching. I figured that sounded like an okay thing to do. Um, friend recommended the coach and the coach turned out to be an ontological coach, which is a word that I hadn't heard of in the past. And um, I kind of thought that it all sounded a little bit kind of weird when he first told me about it, but um, I thought I'd give it a go. Can and you so explain what an ontological coach is? Because I don't know. Yeah, I'd love to. So um, basically ontology is the study of human way of being. So what that means is that in various situations we will be being a certain way. Okay. And that way of being is made up of how we are, 
what's, what's going on for us in language, so what we're thinking to ourselves, um, what we're saying to ourselves, how we're interpreting other people in the conversation, how we're using our language in the conversation, so that's our language. Um, it, it's also made up of what's going on for us emotionally, so the emotion that we're experiencing in that moment or the mood that we're operating from. And then the idea is that we embody all of that. So then um, it's also what's going on in our body. So it's basically three domains, our language, our emotions and our body and how they come together. And the idea is that from our way of being, we then, that informs our behaviours and actions. So the actions and behaviours that we take come from our way of being. Um, and that's how we end up observing the world and interacting with others. And so what an ontological coach does is they look at what's going on in the way of being. So rather than trying to change the behaviour, they, they try and help the coachee to change the way of being so that that informs different behaviours. Okay. Yeah, so um, I found it quite interesting. It's, it's kind of became very much a learning process. So not knowing anything about coaching. Mm. And I was, I think, in a pretty bad place when I decided to um, visit this coach. I, I really wasn't in a happy place. And um, not knowing anything about coaching, I kind of thought that it would be, you know, five or ten sessions with a coach and then I'd be fixed. Well, mm. it doesn't kind of work like that because it wasn't really that there was a problem that had to be fixed. It was more that, you know, we learn how to act, interact with the world in certain ways when we're growing up and when we're going through life. Mm. And the ways that I'd learnt weren't necessarily working for me anymore. And it was a time to, I guess, become open about learning new ways of interacting with, with the world. So my um, my assumed five to ten sessions became two years. And oh, wow. I, I just loved it because it was a whole learning process. So it was really about watching how I observed the world, watching how I interacted with others in the world, and then watching how I was being, so what behaviours really sit behind that and then shifting that being. So as an example of that, um, a very simple example, earlier today um, I received an email and when I received the email, I actually felt a bit annoyed or a bit angry about it. Um, and so my first reaction was, right, you know, I'm annoyed about this. What am I going to do? I have to tell these people that I'm annoyed. And then... So with the ontologic, and so what tends to happen then is we start to follow the default behaviours that come from being annoyed or being yeah. angry, and then we go and do whatever we do from there. Um, with the help of the ontological approach, I guess what I've learned to do is to pause and understand why it is that I'm feeling annoyed and what I'm telling myself about that situation and, and what the story is behind it so that I can then shift that if necessary or use it in whatever way is going to be helpful. So in my example of the email, when I paused and looked at it, I realised that actually I was feeling a little bit annoyed because I had this particular situation under control and I felt like the other person was assuming that I didn't. And so in a way, what was going on for me was the thing that was important was I like to feel like I have my world under control and I yeah. can be trustworthy and reliable, but that wasn't necessarily how I felt. And so from there I was able to go, well, actually that's how I feel in the moment. It may not be what the person intended. And I was able to then select an approach in, uh, or a way of responding to that email that got an outcome that we needed to get. That's a very simple example, but that's effectively how the approach works. So um, I, I basically loved it and I loved the process of 
being in interactions of working out how to shift my, my behaviours or my way of being so that I could create new behaviours and improve my interactions with others. And so from there, what I did was I enrolled in an 18-month ontological coaching course. And um, it, was, it was a really awesome course. So um, there are a couple of people that are well known for those around the world. In Australia, it's um, a man by the name of Alan Spiler. And he, right. he, he actually teaches it in um, a few places around the world as well, but um, he's based in Australia. I think he's actually taught some courses in the UK as well. Um, yeah. And so I did that 18-month course. I finished that about 18 months ago. And since then, I guess what I've been trying to do is develop my business and develop contact, I guess, in the world and, and start to create what my offer is going to be um, for with regard to coaching and facilitation. Yeah. And I think what, um, what I'd like to aid my work towards is, I guess, helping people to see possibility because I think that um, we sometimes tend to shut down possibility and we tend to automatically assume that we can't do something yeah. and think that that's the truth. And I'd like to be able to help people see that actually there are possibilities out there. It's sometimes just a matter of shifting how we're observing the world so that we can see those possibilities. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Well, so when, when you look back to the, the, pre, you know, the pre-ontological coaching, Deanne, and the, and the Deanne of today, what, what are the major differences, would you say? Um, oh, I think there are, are a number. I think in the past, I probably took things a little bit um, personally. So right. I didn't necessarily have the distinctions that would allow me to understand why I was getting upset by something. So I'd probably take things a little bit personally. And I'd use, and I think inadvertently use that to um, reinforce my self-doubt and my low self-esteem and, and whatever. Mm. I think now when I'm interacting with others, I tend to see that, you know, the way we, the way that each of us responds to any situation is really just to take care of something within us that's important to us. Yeah. And so now when I see, when I'm interacting with others, I don't necessarily see their behaviours as a reflection on me. It's a reflection right. of how they're being at that point in time. And and I guess, you know, and, and same for myself, I can see that you know, that's how I'm being now and that may or may not be useful and how, and I can shift, I guess, how I'm being to create what I want to create. Right. So overall, I think I feel a little bit more, um, I probably just feel a little bit more relaxed about my place in the world and a, bit, a little bit more relaxed about interacting with others. And mm. I think um, there's, there's actually a, um, a phrase that I love in the ontological coaching world and it's holding others as legitimate, so it's the legitimate other. And coupled with that, we also have the legitimate self. And what that means is that at any point in time, we're all operating. So the behaviours that we, the behaviours and actions that people take at any point in time are legitimate for how, for their way of being at that point in time. And it might be that we don't like their behaviours and actions and we don't agree with them, but it's legitimate for how they are at that point. And I think um, what, was a huge piece of learning for me and a huge key was that it's kind of like a sweet spot between holding other people's holding other people as legitimate but also understanding that you're legitimate as well and mm. so yeah and um 
and I think that because of that, I feel a little bit more um, just at ease with my place in the world and with how I interact with others and just probably take things a little bit more of my stride and can just see how other people might be operating too. So it's not, it's not so much about me anymore. It's just about mm. um, how we all interact in a way that serves us. Do you feel more confident? Um, I think overall I do. And I think, no, because um, I noticed um, after we're doing this, we're doing this interview uh, on video, although it's going to be broadcast just with the sound. But I notice your body language changes, and your body language becomes very positive when you're talking about the ontological coaching process, and you're really passionate about it. It is something that I'm really passionate about because I think that um, there are so many parts of my life that have been turned around because of it, and I think. Um, yeah, and I think that there are so many possibilities for helping others. Like I think that we we tend to, I think there is a lot of suffering, for want of a better word, that we tend to do um, just through our interactions with others in life. I think yes. sometimes they can cause suffering. And I think that this approach has really helped me to understand how others might be suffering, but also understand my own and shift own suffering and shift that. So in a way it gives... I guess, um, it allows us to lead our own lives, really, so to become mm. self-leaders. So, yeah. That's really interesting and thought-provoking, actually, because, you know, I, I think we all, you know, most of us, might, well, I say most of us, like we, we can only really ever speak for ourselves, but I um, tend to look at life through my eyes and maybe it's, this would help me to look at life through somebody else's eyes a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I think what it does, yeah, I, I think um, it does to a certain degree. And, and so, um, you know, I've, I've got an example. Well, actually, an example. Can I get you, are you okay if I give you an example? Absolutely. Um, so, a few years ago, I, I had a manager, so I had a, a change in manager, and the manager that I had been working with, I, I got along really well with, and I, I really mm. enjoyed working with him. And for whatever reason, he left. And I, I got a new manager and yeah. I continued to operate in the same way that I have with the old manager, but we just seemed to butt heads constantly and I couldn't work it out. It, it just, it didn't seem to work. And, and the thing is, you know, when you're at work, you need your interactions with others to work so that you can get the outcomes that you need. Mm. You don't want to be butting heads with people all the time. And I think our traditional approach to, um, to situations like that will certainly here in Australia, we're pretty good at, at, um, at you know, calling out behaviours that we don't like, I guess. And I think our mm. traditional approach to behaviours like that would be to label the person, like call them difficult or call them an idiot or call them whatever. Yeah. Know, we can't work with them. Um, and I think in that situation, I, I found that um, it was just really hard to interact and get things done and get the outcomes that I needed. And one day I realised that he was pretty new to this organisation and the organisation was one that probably didn't give, didn't give people authority very well. Like people had a lot of um, accountability, but they really didn't have the authority to do anything. And he made a comment one day like, oh, you know, yeah, and the way in which they handle, we handle authority in this organisation just does my head in. And so what I realised was I paused and I thought, if I think about this from his point of view, 
he's come from an organisation where he had the authority to do whatever he could to, to fix an issue. He could throw money at it or do what he wants. He's yeah. come to this organisation where we don't have authority and he's got this um, person working for him, me, who probably was just going in and, and doing what she, what I needed to do and just um, taking, like, and probably just someone who was feeling a little bit threatened about their authority was potentially inadvertently threatening his authority. Right. And 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 so what I did in that particular situation was I thought about what how I could interact with him in a way that would help him to feel as though he had authority when interacting with me. So you know I didn't um, didn't undermine myself or anything like that. But instead of saying I'm going to go and do X, I'd say um, you know my plan is to do X. Do you, is, you know, is that okay with you or do you have any thoughts on that or whatever? And nine times out of ten, he'd go, yeah, that's fine. And the relationship completely turned around and I think it was very much because I'd taken a, taken a moment to understand how he could be seeing the world and tried to shift my approach to speak to that. And, um, yeah, and it's quite fascinating, I think, how interactions can change because I think... You know, if we're feeling um, as though we're suffering in an interaction with others, we automatically assume it's the other person and um, they're at fault. Well, really, it's probably that no one's at fault. It's that the interaction mm. isn't going um, as usefully as it could be because everyone's operating from the learning that they have and it just may not be relevant or useful for that particular interaction or conversation. That's really interesting, Dan. I mean, that, that kind of, that, uh, that, that thinking would transform a lot of workplaces wouldn't it because what happens in workplaces in my experience um and i've not you know i've not worked i've not worked as part of a, a team in a in a proper job for, for for probably 10 years now but um when i used to work in a workplace you know it was all very much um you know the, a lot of i mean p people do tend to hire people that are like them uh and I know when in my my last job, uh, I was a learning and development consultant for a quite a large financial services company, and the lady who actually hired me for that position um, was very very much like me. And in fact, we're still friends now, sort of fifteen years later. But um, she was then replaced by somebody else when I was six months into that that job, and yeah, I got on okay with the the second boss. And then about a year after that, she was replaced by somebody else who um, I kind of, we were, we were like chalk and cheese. And this happens in corporate life all the time. But yeah. nothing, nothing's ever done to really sort of deal with it, I don't think. I think it's just people are just sort of left to, uh, and there is so much um, friction in the workplace because people don't understand that everybody isn't like them. I think. Yeah, and I think we probably start to judge people a bit for, um, you know, not knowing or for being difficult or, or whatever it happens to be. When I, I think that, you know, in reality, most of us are probably dry, trying to do the best that we can with yeah. what we've got. It's just that, um, you know, the person that we've just assessed as difficult probably isn't meaning to be difficult. They're probably trying to get their work done. It's just that the way in which the two are communicating and interacting is um, not necessarily effective. And the thing mm. is, I think that that causes a lot of organisational waste. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we did, I mean, yeah. 
in that yeah. that particular company, you know, we did um, we did some psychometric testing as a team because we uh, we used to we were all trained on um, a psychometric test called OPQ, and um, which you may have, you may have come across. And um, so I found out through through doing my OPQ testing that I was I was the exact polar opposite of my boss, and that helped me to understand her. And I thought, and I even read up on what I needed to do in order to have a better relationship with her. Um, yeah. And I tried to do that, but she didn't do the opposite. She didn't. She she was like a a bulldozer. You know, she was like a like this my way or the highway type of person. You know, and eventually I just had to walk away from it because I thought I've done everything I can to try and build a relationship with her, and that hadn't worked. You know, it's like a perfect. It's like a personal relationship, you know. Sometimes you're in a personal relationship. I've been in personal relationships where, you know, I've actually really thought a lot of the person, um, but they, you know, I've done everything I possibly can to adapt to them, and that they haven't, they haven't met me halfway. So I guess, I guess, for this to work, everybody in the team needs to do some ontological coaching. <laughs> um, that would probably be the ideal. I think yeah. in the situation that I had with the manager that I described, I guess what I did was, and, and this was one of my fr frustrations actually during during coaching. I remember saying to my coaching one day, I feel like I'm forever changing how I'm being so that I can um, work with all the idiots in the world. But the fact of the yes. matter is that, um, you know, firstly, idiots only an opinion. That's not that there really are idiots <laughs> out there. And... Um, we can only change how we're being. We can't change how other people are being. Yes. But in changing how we're being, it could actually um, perturb someone in a way that helps them to change. And that's, I think, what happened with the manager that I was talking about. I changed how I was being, which I think enabled him to then maybe relax and feel a little bit more comfortable. And that relationship was turned around incredibly. Like when I left probably about 12 months after um, he, after he had arrived, um, I remember him saying, you know, we didn't hit it off to start with, but now I'd really love to work with you again. You know, we've had a great time. Mm. And so it really completely turned it around. And he hadn't had any ontological coaching or any training. He probably didn't even know what I was trying to do. But the very um, fact that my behaviour changed somewhat was probably enough for him to then be able to change his. So it's probably... Um, a more gradual result and you know, sometimes it might not have the outcomes that you want and, and then there are decisions and whatever to make around that as well and I guess that comes back to what's important to us and how we want to address that. Yeah I think I think one, you know, one of the things I learned you know I mean, I've done a lot of management training in my career and um, I, you know, I always said that the, the day I learned to manage and I, you know I used to manage a team years ago and um, the day I learned to manage was when I learned to manage my manager. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people never do that. Um, and I, I learned it by accident when I got so frustrated with the situation that I was having to deal with on a daily basis that I actually went to my, in fact, I went to my senior manager because my direct line manager um, wasn't really very much good to be honest and so I bypassed him and went to the next person up who I got on I got on very well with and I actually went into his office and said and said have you got 10 minutes and I explained I explained the problems I was having 
and he instantly provided me with a solution. And I said, oh, so I expected to have a bit more of a conversation about it than that. He said, he said no, one, no one else has ever been asked. He said, we don't know what's going on in your, he said, I don't know what's going on in your world unless you come and tell me. Yeah, and I think that comes back to um, a, a key point that um, I learned, and that's in organisations, and that's the idea of missing conversations. Like, there are times when we don't have conversations with people because we might, I don't know, we might fear the outcome or we might think it's not going to make a difference anyway. And so quite often organisations can be places where there are, not, there are lots of missing conversations. And because those conversations haven't happened, um, they, they can't get resolved and they can't get addressed. And it's quite interesting. So, you know, person A walks around thinking that person B is difficult. Person B can't understand why person A isn't interacting with them. But there's a conversation in there somewhere that probably would have been useful to have that hasn't been had. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, and, I, think um, these, I think people are so, you know, people are so obsessed if you like with achieving kpis or whatever it is that their you know whatever it is that their business is is there to do or their their team is there to do that they actually forget about the people interactions a lot of the time yeah and i think um so in the ontological work that i've been doing um there are a number of like linguistic distinctions that we kind of have our attention drawn to in our training and when you hear about them, they just seem so obvious, really. But they're not really obvious to everyone. For example, like making a request, you know, um, and you think, well, yeah, of course I'm going to make a request if I need something. But quite often we don't. So we don't we don't ask for something if we need it. And then that comes and and that would come back to well, what's a way of being that sits behind that that would stop me from making that request? And quite often when you hear people complaining. Um, it's probably because there's a request in there that hasn't been made that would be useful to make. And you know, I have yeah. an example with my children. My, you know, I, one of my daughters one day was um, was having a moment where she was whinging and complaining. I said, "Well, what request can you make that will turn this situation around?" Because you know, right now I can't respond to the whinging and complaining because I don't know what it is. What's the request? And it's amazing how much that can really turn situations around, just things like making requests. And I think that's another place in organisations where there is a lot of waste. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever got an email that is basically a statement, like you'll have an email that says, um, I don't know, clear information, and you read through the email and you think, actually, I think this person wants me to do something, but they haven't actually asked me. Yeah. And so there's a lot of waste, I think, that happens because we don't, even though we know that we can ask people for help, we don't see it as an actual distinction that's available to us to to um, you know, move us forward or resolve an issue. And I think um, there are probably some other things like that that we tend to not use in language that if we had an awareness of them and had them as, an, as a distinction would make things a little bit more useful for us in conversation. Yeah, I think one of the, I think one of the things that um, I'm absolutely terrible at asking for help you know, I'm getting, be I'm getting better, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very independent. If I can't find, I think if I can't find the answer within my head, it's almost like because I was brought up to be independent, I've been independent all my life. I've never really relied on anybody. Um, no, I haven't, you know, uh, I'm very, I'm very, you know, and uh, it's, it's a, it actually, I mean, it's actually really difficult for me to ask for help. Um, yeah. And, 
when I do, I'm always amazed how quickly how quickly people are only too happy to help and how easy, you know, how easy. And I think, oh, why didn't I think of that? But, you know, because, you know, it's, um, I am getting better at it as I grow older, but I'm still, you know, I still think I should, you know, I should be self-sufficient because I suppose, that, you know, when I, in my younger years, I had to be self-sufficient because there wasn't any, you know, when I left, I left home at 17 and there wasn't anybody else. Um, yes, and you know, I think me, that. So, yeah. That's yeah, and I think, sorry, I, know, I think I think that's a very good example of how our past learning kind of our past learning informs how we are in the present to create what's going on in the future. And yeah. so, you know, I had a similar experience with asking for help in that I came from a family where it was very important to put yourself out for others and help others. And you had to help others. You, you didn't ask for help. You gave to others and helped others. And um, you didn't ask for help unless you had something to give back. And then it was only if you had no other choice but to ask for oh, help. Oh, really? And, and so, um, and it was just um, how things were. And so I probably have a similar experience to you in that asking for help isn't always the first thing that, that comes to mind. It wasn't always the first thing that comes to mm. mind. Um, what I kind of started to learn was that People like to be asked for help. I mean, people um, sometimes people like to feel needed and wanted and like to be asked for help. And the other part is that when you make a request to someone, they don't have to say yes. There are a number of responses that you can give to a request. Like they can say yes, they can say no, they can say, um, you know, they can say, look, can I check and get back to you? Or yeah. they can, you know, there are a number of different um, things that people, responses that people can give to a request. And I think um, what we sometimes tend to do is we start to think about we, we start to think about um, how we might be putting them on the spot and forcing them when actually they've got a choice too. So um, you know they don't have to say yes; they can say no, or they can you know reschedule, or they can do whatever they want. Mm. And a very that was a very big piece of learning for me too, because all of a sudden instead of telling myself a story about how I can't ask this person to do this thing for me because they're busy and they're whatever, I could go well actually they might be busy, but that's actually up to them to work out. Like it's up to them to tell me that I I can give them an out. I can say look, if you're too busy, that's fine. It's okay to say no, mm. but in a way, um, it's taking away a choice from them in a way to just assume that it's they're going to say no. That's mm. how I decided to justify it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to, just to, um, I'd be very interested to hear what you think of the concept of heart-shaped decisions, uh, Diane, because um, we've had a conversation about this before, but uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I know I know you like to think the heart and soul are linked together in that, in some books. So could you, could you talk, tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, so I was really excited when I first heard about your heart-shaped decision um, approach because what it meant, so as I said, the ontological approach consists of um, language, emotions and body and what's going on in each of those domains. Yeah. So for me, the heart-shaped decision approach feels very much like it's a combination of what's going on in our emotions and what's going on in our body. That's, that's what I feel and hear when I hear heart-shaped decisions. And it felt really... Um, it just sounded so amazing to me when I first heard it because it sort of felt like decisions that were coming from, I guess, a place of love or self-love or something like that. And it just felt really special. And um, 
and um, yeah, I think when I look at the decisions that I make in life, I probably, I, I don't know that I've ever given them a label, so, um, okay. but if I did, I'd probably think of it, when, when I think of applying the ontological approach, I'd probably think of it as a soul-based decision because it's about what's getting, what's um, going on beneath the actions and behaviours and getting really to the soul of it. Yeah. And I was reflecting on this the other day and I thought, well, the heart and the soul really are, are linked. Like we, we often talk about putting our heart and soul into things and we often talk, you know, we link the heart and the soul so much when we're, when we're talking about them. So, yeah, so I think that your heart-based decisions, your heart-based decision approach is probably very similar to some mm. of what I've learned and what I've been um working on and, and thinking about and probably in some ways linked particularly through that body and emotion piece. Yeah, I mean I I was talking to so I was talking to a good friend and mentor of mine called uh, David Heiner recently and he's um I'm in a mastermind group that he facilitates and uh he he was saying that you know he thinks that thoughts lead to feelings and feelings lead to actions and I said my way of looking at that is that I have the feeling first and then the thought and then the action. So, you know, if something feels right, um, I'm very much a feeling, uh, a, a, probably an emotion-led person. So I, if something feels right, I'll do it. If, you know, it's like um, if, some, if I come across somebody and um, it feels right, I, I'll invite them on my podcast like yourself. For example, it felt right. We just had you came on my webinar. We'd never, we'd never, we'd never met before. Obviously, we'd never met. We're on the other side of the world, but we didn't know each other up until then. And I thought, oh, you know, that lady's got something interesting to say. Um, and it, so you, it was a feeling that made me want to actually talk to you some more. And in fact, we have spoken before today, haven't we, as well? Um, because yeah, you've got yeah. something interesting to say. Um, yeah. It's very interesting that you say that actually because um, you've I mentioned that there's an emotion component to the ontological approach and the mm. interpretation of emotions in the ontological approach is that we um, that emotions serve a purpose so they're there to tell us something yeah. and I think most of us in our upbringing with regard to emotions probably um, you know, we tend to think of the heightened emotions that we're experiencing, so when we're feeling really angry or whatever, but we don't necessarily think that right now sitting here when I'm feeling quite okay about the world, for example, that I will be operating from an emotion of some sort. There'll be an mm. emotion there. And um, emotions are there, I think, as well. The interpretation that I like is that emotions are there as a sign that there's something within us that is there to be taken care of. Right. Yeah, so yeah, when yeah. I gave the example of feeling angry, for example, mm. when we feel angry, we feel like there has been um, an injustice of some sort. And so our emotions have a, you generally have a predisposed action. So our, our, in society, we tend to think of emotions as being good or bad. And yeah. the interpretation that I have learned recently that I really love is that Emotions are not good or bad. They just are. They're there to serve a purpose and they have a reason behind them. So from anger, for example, which is one that has a bit of a bad reputation, um, it's there to tell us that an injustice has been done. And so mm. 
what our, I guess, predisposed action for that is to try and punish the source of the injustice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so when you were saying earlier that you have feelings and then your feelings lead to actions, I think that very much aligns with the interpretation, the ontological interpretation of emotions. Yeah. Because when you think of the word emotions, it's actually got the word motion in it. And so they're impulses for action. Mm. And so, um, and it's actually quite interesting. So, you know, in a, in a given situation, if you pause to look at the emotion that you might be feeling, and this is where emotional literacy and emotional learning come, come in, um, if we start to look at the emotions that we're feeling, we can understand, you know, what they're telling us, the story that they're telling us about the situation, what action they're predisposing us to and what we're likely to do from them and how we'd like to use them. So all of a sudden that doesn't become, well, I'm feeling angry, so I'm going to yell at someone because that punishes the source of the injustice. It can be, well, actually, I'm feeling angry because I feel that injustice has been done. What would help me here? It might be that making a request to someone um, would help. It might be that walking away would help. It might be, um, you know, something completely different. And so, yeah, what you're saying about emotions and um, having having the feeling and then taking the action, I think very much aligns and I very much relate to that and um, can understand that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I am, I'm, the more I'm listening to you, the more I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, I'm actually, I am actually directed and sometimes le led by my emotions and um, yeah, so maybe I need to be, maybe I need to change a little bit, maybe just sort of scale that back a little bit, but you know, I mean, all, Having said that, all the major decisions I've made in my life have been heart-shaped decisions, and um, that that has made me, that has got me to where I am today, and it's also made me who I am. So, um, well, I would argue that if you have made decisions, heart-shaped decisions, which you're saying are informed by emotions, uh -huh. then you've and you're happy with those decisions, and they've had the outcomes that you want, then you've perhaps you've been losing your emotions in a way that actually serves you. Yeah. Because I don't know that it's necessarily a case of we are we need to be more or less emotional, I think. Um, but understanding our emotions and, and and how to use them to get useful outcomes, I think, is mm. the key. And you know, I would argue that if your decisions are working for you, then perhaps you're doing that anyway. Yeah, but so I'm thinking, I've actually learned a lot from this conversation, you know, I don't say that to everybody. I mean, no disrespect to some of the people that come up that I've had on the podcast. They're all wonderful people in their own way. But this has been, um, I, could, I could actually continue with this conversation for quite a bit longer. Maybe we need to do another one sometime because it's really, uh, really, it's really actually interesting to listen to the perspective that you've gained on life from doing this ontological coaching and the training that goes along with it. And it's, um, it's a really interesting topic. Um, but I try to keep the length of the podcast to about half an hour, and we've been going for around about that, just a little, a little over. Um, so, Deanne, if anybody would like to contact you um, to talk about this, or indeed anything else, would you be happy for people to contact you? I'm not saying you're going to get thousands of people contacting you, but you might get one or two. Um, how, would, how would they contact you? I would love to have people contact me if they'd like to know more. So I've got an email address, which is Dian, D-E-A-N-N-E, -N -N -E, at leadingandbeing, or one word, dot com.
leadingandbeing.com, yeah? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you are, I guess you can be found on LinkedIn as well. I can be found on LinkedIn, yes. Jan Duncan. Good. Profile picture with the orange hair. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's really been great to talk to you and uh, I wish we could talk for longer. Maybe we will, maybe um, in a few months we'll get in touch and we'll have a part two. Um, and see, how, see where we are on our journeys in maybe sometime next year. Well, thank you. No, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to have another chat in the future, anytime. So that would be wonderful. Brilliant. And thank you for having me today. It's no, Deanne, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've really, I've really, I've really found it interesting. I've learned a lot myself. It made me think, and not everybody makes me think, but you have. So <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. I'll be in to talk soon. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Bye.